0: The word of God is given to us this morning in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and I'll be reading from the NIV version. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Dolores. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Bob Prusader. I'm a, for what it's worth, I'm an active elder here, and it's been an absolute blessing to have been a, member of this church family since the mid-1990s. I think it was last November, uh, I shared a message titled, Chosen Call Come. And for those of you who who were here and able to stay awake, you you might remember that we focused on the phenomenon of being a follower of Jesus Christ and attending a church worship service, because most of the world doesn't, and yet you're here, you were here, and it's such a small percentage that decide to get up on a Sunday morning and come worship, like you folks have this morning. And we reviewed the scriptural foundation of being called, Uh, And now that you're here today, I think today's scripture will take us deeper into what ought to occur while we're here. Because God wants more than for us just to show up. As you know, our scripture reading is Luke 18th chapter, verses 9 through 14. Uh, Those are six verses which are far fewer than the verses that Gary and, uh, Larry, and uh, Barrett, Brian and Jordan have messaged on the previous Sundays. And I know exactly what you're thinking. Six verses. <laughs> but I promise to have you out of here by noon. So before we start today, the, the title of the message is Your Heart. And if, if it's okay with you, what I wanted to do is reduce a little bit of review from uh, John Flavel, who was a a Presbyterian minister back nearly 400 years ago, and he would probably be viewed as being in in the Puritan lineage. And so John wrote a book based on Proverbs 4.23, and that verse is, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And so I think there are some really good things that he shared in this book that I think will help get us ready to kind of examine the scripture reading today. And the first thing he, in the book he asks is, what's the difference between acting holy and being holy? It's a critical question. And then he also, in the intro of the book, talks about the heart of man. And here's what he says about it. And I think you might find this interesting, that the heart of man, is the worst part before it is regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the worst part. But it's the best part of man after it's regenerated. That the heart is the seat of principles and the foundation of actions. That the eye of God is fixed upon it. And that the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon it And then two other points. It's the greatest difficulty in conversion to win the heart to God. The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. The heart is a metaphor. It represents some particular noble faculty of the soul. A few other things. He says this, what the heart is to the body, the soul is to the man. What health is to the heart, holiness is to the soul. The state of the whole body depends on the soundness and vigor of the heart. The everlasting state of the whole man depends on the good or ill condition of the soul. Keep the heart diligent and constant use of all holy means to do two things, preserve the soul from sin and to maintain its sweet and free communion with God. The issues of life flow out of the heart. The heart is attacked from within, from within and from outside. Keeping the heart is our work, but we are insufficient to do it. The duty is ours. Though the power is of God, what power we have depends on the exciting and assisting strength of Christ. Without him we can do nothing. So hopefully you'll find that as as a useful intro as we we get into these uh, verses. And again, a little bit of background. It's a parable. We've been a lot of parables. And it's communicated through the gospel writer Luke who is, you know, I think could be described as the most most pervasive and detailed of all the gospel writers. Uh, And the parable is told by Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and I think we ought not lose sight of that, nor should we gloss over it. He spoke this parable while being on this earth, the same earth that you and I stand on today. And so one question is, why was he even here? Well, that answer, I think, is It's pretty simple. It was here to address the most serious breach between God and man. And so consequently, this parable that we're going to go through today will reveal truth, not provide amusement. This parable will reveal truth, not nibble around the edges so we can live life a little better. This parable will reveal him to us and us to ourselves that we may be changed. But which part of us changed? Our hearts. Because this is what he wants more of, our hearts. These are his words being spoken to us this morning. And that being the case, we might all want to just sit up a little straighter in the pew. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and humble to be here this morning to worship you. May our hearts be open to your leading, that we may be drawn near to you and into the likeness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, with all of our hearts and nothing less. Amen. Okay, thank you. So let's let's jump into verse 9. And this is Luke giving a little intro to the parable. And, And I think this intro is so interesting, again, written to... Theophilus, and, and ultimately to a broader audience. And imagine Luke, he, and look how much he's written. The, the, the book of Luke alone, and then you look at the book of Acts. This, he, it's just unbelievable what he's writing in such detail and precision. And so he, he's sitting there, and he's writing, and just imagine he's saying, like, hey, he also told this parable. of all, But he also told this one. To some who trusted themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. That's from the English Standard Version. First of all, notice the kind of subtlety here. It's it's kind of subtle, Uh, but my goodness, the eventual weight of it all. You know, Charles Spurgeon, you know, gave a sermon on this scripture, and he just talked about, you know, it's kind of soft. You know, the thrown in, you know, Luke says also, and then there's this sum. But you know, in scripture it's not uncommon that, that we get set up, like we think that it's going one way, and all of a sudden there's a quick pivot and then all of a sudden we realize that something's being said to us in a way that we might have never imagined. This was also, I think, uh, you know, true for the, the Pharisees in a lot of cases. In this intro, I, I think we need to like, look at three specific concepts or terms. The first one is righteousness here in verse 9. Uh, the other is trust in themselves and treat others with contempt. First of all, righteousness speaks to God's majesty and standard for holiness which is revealed in the law and in the most important commandment. I think you know what that is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And the greatest tragedy of mankind is Adam's breach. Because it was at this point that man took his gaze off the glory and holiness of God and started to turn that gaze onto himself or other man-made inventions or frivolities. And this breach makes it impossible for us to meet the requirements of this commandment. So as we get into this parable, I think that we need to pay particular attention to the importance of what righteousness means. Trusted in themselves is an abomination because it it places themselves in the place of meeting the righteous standard and not God. And if this is the case, who needs God? If you can trust in yourself, why is God even necessary? That's part of the breach of sin. But then look at this last little intro that that Luke says as he's getting ready to tell the rest of the, the story, and treated others with contempt. That's executing judgment, casting others beneath you. Not only judgment, but harsh judgment. Again, a case of man injecting himself into the role of judge rather than God. So just in regard to an introduction, I think that's pretty compelling. But again, it's, it's kind of presented in kind of a, an unassuming way. And then there's this also this, he, he told this parable to some. But you know, scripture always speaks, I think, to those folks in the immediate historical context, but, but also to those in the future. A future audience. You know, that audience this morning is us. So we should be careful to assume that the some in the scripture refers to other folks than ourselves. So, Luke sets up the parable, I think, reasonably well. Let's go to verse 10, if we could. And this, this verse is pretty simple, don't you think? Two men went up, likely the steps, because the temple was a little elevated. Two men went up the steps to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, Tax collector. So that's it. That's verse nine. But let's take a let's take a look at this. Two men entering the temple, and you know, possibly at the same time, and they may have been walking up side by side. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Let's let's look take a look and examine the the Pharisee. And you know, given his position, can you imagine him? Probably a lot of pomp and circumstance. Here's a guy, and he, you know, I imagine he's got some robes on and these robes are flowing. He might have some tassels on. Uh, you know, he is credentialed. He has studied the law. He is familiar with the law. And he likely teaches the law. The temple is his home turf. Then there's the, the tax collector. And you folks probably know that in this area, the tax collector was like the worst of the worst. You know, they're working on behalf of the Roman government. They're like extorting and playing games, and they're just like despicable. Just despicable tax collector, Pharisee and a tax collector. And I think for the tax collector, it might have been even bold for him to even show up due to the scorn and derision he'd feel from the other folks possibly in the temple. So they enter the temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's go to verse 11. This is kind of where the action begins. Let's let's look at the Pharisee. You know, you just picture the Pharisee walks in and goes to the most prominent place in the temple, probably up near the front. Why? So he can be seen, heard, and admired. So the Pharisee, pops up, stands and proclaims, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you're thinking like, wow. You know, it's like, thank you, God, for me. And notice the comparison is that I'm not, like, I'm not like some other men. He says, I'm not like other men. I'm better than them all. And the other thing that's interesting here is, is that he's got to be looking around. Be, you know, he's got to be scouring the place. Because he's like, he targets the tax collector. Again, using that as another measure for his greatness. You know, Look at that low life back there. Look at that low life tax collector. Am I not infinitely more desirable to you than him? And folks, if that's not enough, let's go to to verse 12. Because he's not done yet. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And you know, I don't I don't mean to inject Dr. Seuss here, because I know you, you folks may be a little disturbed by this, but if you remember, you know, we used to read these Dr. Seuss books, Cat in Hat, the Cat in a Hat poem. And if you remember the little poem in there, look at me, look at me, look at me now. It's great to be awesome like me, but you have to know how. You get this, That's what's striking about this Pharisee. And remember in verse 9, Two men went up to the temple to do what? Pray. So where's the gaze of this Pharisee? There's little doubt, isn't there, that this gaze is fixed on himself, on his wonderful actions. His gaze has even gone out to notice who else is in the temple, for which of some we know he has contempt. And this has all taken place in the temple, mind you. Some kind of prayer. And as you can see, the assessment of righteousness, as we talked about earlier, is totally based on comparison to others, external compliance to some elements of the law, but notice his comparison weren't the two most important commandments. He took two, pil- two lower commandments and admired himself. And so as you you look at him, and you assess him, and you examine him, how do you think he feels about himself? And where do you think his heart is? The trip to the temple seems to have been a wonderful opportunity to validate his righteousness in his own mind. It's the Pharisee. Now let's, uh, let's go to verse... 13, and let's take a look at the tax collector. So Jesus continues the parable now. But, now whenever you see that in scripture, the but, be prepared because something's going to change. There's going to be a pivot. There's, we're we're going to be looking at something a little bit differently. So right now you're probably thinking, okay, so but, 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 the te- tax collector standing far off. Mind you. Now, now, think about that. If this, if this were the temple, here's what we know. We know that the Pharisee might be, you know, might be sitting up here somewhere. And you know where that tax collector might be right now? I bet that tax collector would be back in that narthex somewhere, back behind the glass, barely visible to us. Because it would have taken everything he had just to come to the temple, based on who he was. So the tax collector is standing far off, tucked back there somewhere. And he's ba- as he's back there, he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, the scripture says. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And you know why? Because he just was not willing to look up and see that holiness of God, the majesty of God that he felt that he couldn't even lift those eyes up to go there. but he beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, exclamation point. You know, think about that, standing far off, not feeling worthy to draw close, looking down in shame probably to God's glory. His gaze, although cast down we know, is likely looking up, To God in his holiness. And and just think about. You know. As he's got his head down. And he's recounting politely. All the ways that he has fallen short. Over the past day or week. And he may be thinking about the things he'd done as a tax collector. He might be thinking about the ways he failed as a husband. As a friend. He may be thinking some of the thoughts that he knew were not holy. So he is. Got his head down, and, and and so what you imagine is as this stuff is just, and all of a sudden, he can't help it. He beats his chest. He beats his chest, and I don't know. You know when you know we've watched a basketball game. I've watched is, is some. Somebody makes a bad pass or something, they'll say, they'll say something like, my bad. You ever see that? My bad. Well, this tax collector isn't like tapping his chest. He's beating his chest. God, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And can you feel that intensity? Can you feel that emotion that was welling up inside his heart to the point where he couldn't help? but to just scream that out and cry that out, begging for mercy. And what he was begging was this, God, don't punish me as I deserve You know, it's as though his heart was pierced. He's recounting his fallenness. And you can just imagine this level of desperation. Now let me ask, does that look and feel more like prayer to you? So both the Pharisee and the tax collector began, if you notice, began their prayers with God. They both started that way. But there's only really one whose gaze was genuinely on God. And the tax collector's response, doesn't it remind you a little bit of Isaiah back in the fifth verse of that chapter? Do you remember that? I mean, those, Isaiah says, when when he's able to kind of see the glory of God filling the town, he says, Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, So that's, that's the tax collector. So we're, my goodness, we're already at verse 14, you guys have got to be reasonably pleased. Not so fast. So Jesus continues and finishes the parable. And just, here's here's Jesus. And he just, you know, just kind of, he's telling this parable. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, which means acceptable to God, saved, rather than the other do you notice that he doesn't even refer to this guy as a Pharisee anymore? He just refers to him as rather than the other. It's almost like he doesn't even, he ceases to even recognize or know this person who is a Pharisee. Isn't that interesting? Kind of subtle. This rather than the other. For everyone, and notice that it's plural here. Not just some. For everyone, Jesus says, who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one, notice, singular, who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable. And he's on earth not because the stakes are low. He's here because the stakes are high. The tax collector, Jesus says, is justified, which means not guilty. The other, not so. And Jesus is just kind of, you know, solemnly, softly, rather than the other. So then in the the final analysis, you know, what does it mean, you know, that one will be humbled and and one will be exalted? Well, we we won't spend a lot of time on that, but we do know, you know, that something's happening. Somebody's being humbled and somebody's being exalted. It's happening to them. It's not on their own will. It's the verbiage you know we see this in the in the 16th chapter of luke just a couple chapters ago you recall the poor man lazarus exalted the rich man again don't no reference by name humbled and you know one of the side note if you'll if you'll permit me i think you know as as we read scripture in the bible the the message of the gospel comes through you know as, as like this wonderful symphony you know the themes are redundant they really are but And they're woven beautifully, but there's loud, dramatic pieces. There's softer ones, but in every case, it's proclaiming the story, revealing truth, impacting the, the intellect, the emotions, the heart. This case, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm. So as as we walk away from this parable, which of the two are we most similar? Walking into worship this morning, how did we come here to pray? Where was our gaze? Was it at all with the mindset that we're not like other men, because we do some of the right stuff? We read the Bible. We Come to church, we behave civilly, we don't do some of those, you know, drinking, swim. Do we use Sunday worship as an opportunity to kind of validate our goodness or to just leave feeling good about ourselves? Checking something off our little list of things to do. Do we use it as leverage at all for those who don't behave the same way we do? Do we come with hearts on fire or bitter cold? Degrees in between. Have we ever felt compelled to beat our chest and cry for mercy? Do we come with hearts of flesh or hearts of stone? You know, this message comes through with a degree of subtleness. And I'll, I'll just suggest to you, friends, because you're all, you're all here today, that our response to God's holiness can and often does subtly diminish over time. Even for those who come here regularly, are engaged in a a variety of religious activities and work, it's the the pervasive work of sin, again often subtle, where we slowly and gradually take our gaze from God and start to put it on ourselves, possibly. We put it on other man-made inventions You know, God has given us intellect but also emotion. Emotion comes from the heart. If our gaze is truly on God, we can't but help to respond with a certain level of emotion. When our gaze is on ourselves, I think we harden. In the Psalms alone, friends, David, I mean, isn't it just amazing uh, how he is a, a witness to the gamut of intense emotions as he responds to God's holiness, he responds to his own sin, he, he responds to God's mercy, God's comfort, but most of all, God's love. David is almost always responding with a high degree of emotion and feeling. And beyond that, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is just in of intense emotions of the saints as they experience the, intent, the presence, the power, and the majesty of God. It's loaded with that. And friends, isn't it it good news that Jesus came to share this parable? It's told with such tenderness, concern, and love. He wants more of our hearts. The better good news is eventually what happens after he tells the parable. He knew he was here to do more for us than teach a parable. We can't do enough good works to reconcile us to God. He gave himself for us. And believing in him with humble hearts, we can walk out of here this morning knowing more assuredly we are justified, sanctified, and eventually glorified. just like the tax collector. But he wants more of our hearts. Will he get it? If it's okay with you, with your permission, instead of me trying to babble through some prayer like I do most of the time, I'd like to read something from uh, the Valley of Vision this is, you know, Pastor Eric was kind enough to share this kind of stuff, but these are Puritan devotionals. And I thought if I could just finish with this, and then we'd say the Lord's Prayer, and then sure enough, I'm going to have you out of here by noon. <laughs> but these Puritans, my goodness, are they good? I mean, they, they are so good. And I think what you're going to see if you listen, if you catch it, I think you're going to see some intersection with the the, the scripture today, which I think is just kind of, kind of cool. The title of this is called True Christianity. Lord of heaven, thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable, in the works of creation thou art almighty, in the dispensations of providence, all wise, in the gospel of grace, all love. And in thy son, thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin, the justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the preservation of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terrors of thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry, unclean, we have a fountain for sin. Though creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness as accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in religion, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart, but not a new one, who have light zeal, confidence, but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence upon Jesus, but by our love to him, our conformity to him, our knowledge of him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the spirit, that profits every correction and is injured by no carnal indulgence.